We're continuing our series called The Seven Churches of Revelation, and today we're going to look at the church in Thyatira. When I was in eighth grade, I attended a small Christian school in Camarillo, California. My mom was teaching there at the time, and so I attended there for one year. And I remember during the spring semester, I entered the science fair, and my science fair project was entitled Water Pollution. I decided to do my project on water pollution, and here's the way that I tested how pollution would affect a creature that was created by God. I decided to purchase a few goldfish. Uh, more accurately, my parents uh, bought me a few goldfish, and I put a couple goldfish in one bowl uh, with some nice, clean, sparkling, fresh water, and then I put a couple other goldfish in a second bowl that started out with some fresh, clean water, but then I added some salt. And as you probably know, freshwater goldfish uh, don't like salt in their water. And then I just started to journal over the next couple weeks what happened to the fish in the two different bowls. Each day I would add a little bit more salt to the uh, salt water bowl and see what happened to the fish and log in the data. And I do the same for the freshwater fish. Guess what happened to the fish in the salt water bowl after two weeks? No, they didn't die. (laughs) You think I'm just out there to kill goldfish? No, they didn't die, but I can guarantee you it stunted their growth a little bit, okay? I noticed over those two weeks, those fish that had salt in their water didn't grow as much. And so I learned there in junior high that when we have pollution in our water or pollution in our air or other parts of our planet for that matter, it does negatively affect us physically, Today we're going to be looking at this church in Thyatira, and we're going to see that what is true in the physical realm is equally true in the spiritual realm. Spiritual pollution can stunt our growth, and if we leave it there long enough, can even kill us. So we're going to be in just a few moments in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Let me tell you a little bit about this city of Thyatira, the fourth of our seven churches of Revelation. We talked a few weeks ago about the first church, the church of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, as I've mentioned to you over the last few weeks, was like the New York City of the Roman Empire. Then there was Smyrna. It was like the Acapulco of the Roman Empire. And last week we took a look at uh, Pergamum. Pergamum was kind of a cross between Washington, D.C. and Woodstock. And then now we arrive at the fourth church, uh, the church in the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was kind of like the Fort Irwin of the Roman Empire back then. It wasn't a stellar, magnificent, big, popular city like the other three we've looked at. But it was a pretty good city, not a bad place to live. Let me put up this map for you. The seven churches of Revelation, church number four we're looking at today, the church there in Thyatira. Uh, was about 50 miles or so southeast of that third city, the city of Pergamum. It was about 40 miles southeast, actually, and it was a military outpost in John's day. It had been a military outpost for many years, and it was built up for one purpose, to protect that third city, the city of Pergamum, from an invasion from the east. And so if a foreign nation decided to take out the capital city of Pergamum, who was standing in their way? That military outpost full of a few thousand soldiers right there just to the east in the city of Thyatira. 
And so those soldiers in Thyatira for many years served as a human shield to protect the capital city there in Asia Minor. Pergamum became known throughout the Roman Empire uh, as being not only a military city, though, because they had thousands of soldiers and, and thousands of civilians who were family members of those soldiers. A lot of industries began to be built up there in the city of Thyatira over the years, especially industries that dealt with uh, metallurgy and especially bronze because those soldiers needed weapons. Uh, the soldiers and their families needed clothes, so large textile industries were formed there in the city of Thyatira. And so this city uh, became known throughout the Roman Empire for having some wonderful industries that would send products throughout the kingdom. And one thing it became especially known for was the textiles that would be purple or red in color. You see, there was no other city in the world that could produce textiles, clothing, that had as vibrant of colors of red and purple as those textile industries in the city of Thyatira produced. In fact, uh, we find in Acts chapter 16 that when Paul was in the Greek city of Philippi, the first convert to Christianity there in Philippi was a lady by the name of Lydia. And it says there in Acts 16 that she was a dealer in purple from the city of Thyatira. So although Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities of Revelation, it had the most organized trade guilds. And this is important to keep in mind as we look at what Jesus says to the church here in this city. These trade guilds in in New Testament times were kind of a cross between our modern-day unions, our trade unions, and the mafia. It was kind of this combination of uh, we're going to fight for our members that are carrying out this particular trade, and at the same time, if you're not part of us, you're against us, and we're going to take you out. It wasn't quite like the mafia, but you get the idea. The way it worked in those days, if you had a certain skill, a certain occupation, you had to be a part of a trade guild in that city. If you're not, you were blacklisted, and you were like dead to them. Trade guilds were very good at protecting their own, defending their own, and making sure everyone in their guild had a job. But if you weren't in that guild, you were out. And they made sure that life wasn't easy for you. And so this city of Thyatira had the most well-organized trade guilds uh, for at least a dozen different trades and industries. Every year, each trade guild there in Thyatira would enjoy these lavish parties in the temple dedicated to the god Apollo. Apollo was considered to be the god of the sun. He was also nicknamed the sun god or the son of God because he was a son of the Greek god Zeus, according to Greek mythology. And so this title, son of God, for the number one god there in the city of Thyatira becomes really relevant when we read what Jesus says to the Christians in that city. One other thing to keep in mind about these trade guilds, when they would have these lavish parties at the temple to Apollo, uh, they would worship him and they would require their members to burn incense to him because Apollo was considered to be the patron, I shouldn't say patron, say he was considered to be the chief god of the trade guilds, which meant those in the trade guilds believed if you didn't get on Apollo's good side, then their industry would suffer. They believed their industries were booming in the city of Thyatira because they got on Apollo's good side. So they wouldn't allow anyone to diss 
their favorite god. You had to worship Apollo if you were going to be a part a part of one of those trade guilds and be in active standing with them. Well, with all that in mind, let's take a look at what Jesus says to the church in Thyatira beginning in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. God's word reads, To the angel in the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called dark secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless us as we read and study his word today. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes Open our ears, open our minds and hearts to your word. You say a lot to this church in Thyatira, and I know much of that you're saying to us today as well. Help us to hear what you have to teach us and help us to change in any way that you want us to change. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I find it really interesting that of all the seven cities in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Thyatira was the smallest of those seven cities. And so I'm guessing the church in Thyatira was one of the smallest of those seven churches. Yet Jesus spends more time speaking to them than any of the other six churches. He writes them the longest letter. So take heart, I believe God is telling us today. Take heart, Christians, no matter how small or insignificant you think you are, no matter how small and insignificant people around you think that you are, you mean the world to me. I love you, and I have some big plans for your life. Just because others might not think you're, insig- might think you're insignificant, don't ever think that I believe you're insignificant. You mean the world to me. In my kingdom, you are very significant. Notice how Jesus identifies himself in verse 18. He starts by saying, these are the words of the Son of God. This is pretty cool. This is the only time that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God in the entire book of Revelation. And so we ask the question, well, why did he choose to identify himself as the Son of God here to this church in this city? And I think it goes back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago about the god Apollo, who was the chief god in Thyatira and the god that all the trade guilds lifted up as the most important deity. 
Remember his nickname, Apollo, was the son of God. And so I believe Jesus is basically saying this. Christians, let me remind you. Let me remind you that your neighbors are all worshiping a fake son of God. But not you. You're worshiping the real deal. You're worshiping the true son of God. Amen? Doesn't it seem like that's what Jesus is getting at here in this introductory verse? I think so. Then Jesus describes himself as the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. Jesus, remember, when he identifies himself this way, is calling to our attention the fact that he has penetrating vision. He is all-seeing. He is all-knowing. He sees all. He knows all. Nothing gets past Jesus. Amen? Finally, Jesus describes himself in verse 18 as the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Remember that bronze was the strongest metal in John's day. So Jesus is strong, and since his feet are made out of this, it's also calling to our attention that he is stable. Jesus is strong, and he's stable. Now, Jesus, beginning in verse 19, follows the three-point outline that he follows in most of his letters to the seven churches. He starts out in verse 19 by uh, giving some praises to the church in Thyatira. Then in verses 20 to 25, he rebukes the church for some of the things they're doing wrong. And then finally, in verses 26 through 29, Jesus makes some promises to the Christians there in Thyatira. So let's start with Jesus' praises in verse 19. Jesus praises the Thyatira Christians for four things. He praises them for their deeds. He praises them for their love. He praises them for their faith. And then finally, he praises them for their persevering service. Those are some pretty good praises, don't you think? Those Christians aren't just doing good deeds. Unlike the Christians in Ephesus, they're doing their good deeds for the right reasons. Because he says there, I'm praising you for your love. Remember, that was the problem in Ephesus. They were doing all sorts of good deeds, but they were doing them for the wrong reason. They had forsaken their first love, Jesus Christ. Well, evidently, the Christians here in Thyatira weren't making that same mistake. Because Jesus praises them for their love. He also praises them for their faith. And so they evidently had a strong faith in God and they weren't uh, reneging on their faith in God. They trusted Him. So if Jesus' letter to the Christians in Thyatira had ended at this point, we would be tempted to say that it was a great church. It was a model church. Their faith in Jesus was strong. Their love for each other was real. And as far as doing good deeds and serving, these Christians were hitting it out of the park. But there is something glaringly absent in Jesus' praises. He doesn't praise them for their doctrine. Jesus doesn't praise them for their teaching of God's true word while expelling all false teachers. That's important to keep in mind. You probably remember the first church that Jesus wrote a letter to, the church at Ephesus, had some issues. Namely, they were forsaking their first love But remember, Jesus commended them for sticking true to sound doctrine. They they were teaching sound doctrine and they were showing to the, the curb anyone that tried to come in and tried to teach false doctrine. The Ephesian Christians tested church leaders. He says there early in chapter 2, they tested Christian uh, Christian uh, church leaders who called themselves apostles. And if they failed the test, the church called them out on it, kicked them to the curb. 
When the Nicolaitans tried to infiltrate the Ephesian church, the church wouldn't stand for it. They were zealous for God's true word and they hated false teaching. But as we look at Jesus' praises of the Thyatira Christians here in, in verse 19, we don't see any evidence of that kind of zeal and commitment to God's true word in their church. There's no indication that they stand firm against people who pollute God's word. And that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Evidenced by the fact that Jesus spends six verses on his rebuke, beginning in verse 20. Look at how Jesus begins his rebuke in verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. This is a unique rebuke. If you look at all seven letters written to all seven churches, five of those seven churches, Jesus levels some sort of rebuke against. And at times he'll call out a group, like a group of Nicolaitans that were infiltrating the church or those following the way of Balaam. We looked at that last week in the church in Pergamum. But this is the only time Jesus calls out an individual and rebukes that individual in one of these seven churches. And he calls this woman Jezebel. Now that probably wasn't her real name. That was probably a bit of a nickname Jesus was giving her because she was following in the path of that Old Testament Queen Jezebel. Most of you probably remember Queen Jezebel. She's uh, talked about in 1 Kings chapters 16 through 21 uh, there in the Old Testament. If you read those six chapters in 1 Kings, you'll see that Queen Jezebel was a powerful force in northern Israel. King Ahab was the king of state. He was the head of state. But we read, in essence, that Jezebel was the neck that turned the head. You know, he was head of state, but she turned his head. This woman Jezebel had an amazing amount of control over her husband and over the nation of northern Israel. She led both her husband and her husband's nation into idol worship and the whole slew of immoral behaviors that went with that idol worship. She was arrogant, she was materialistic, and she was vengeful. She likely murdered dozens of God's true prophets there in northern Israel, possibly even hundreds of them. And that's why almost no one today names their daughter Jezebel, because that name over the last several thousand years has become synonymous with wickedness. Listen to how God's Word describes King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, in 1 Kings chapter 21. God says this, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. So what was the Thyatira Jezebel doing that was wrong? Why does Jesus call her out here in Revelation 2? Well, he points out in verse 20, she's doing three things. Boy, that's good counting. (laughs) Three things wrong. (laughs) Sin number one. Sin number one in verse 20. She called herself a prophetess. She called herself a prophetess. So for starters, she was assuming for herself a position of authority that she didn't have. She was assuming for herself a position of authority and even a title that God hadn't given her. 
Now, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as he's been spending all of that chapter teaching us about spiritual gifts. Near the end of the chapter, he says, In the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. So notice when he says he is appointed first of all, Paul is setting up for us a pecking order in the church, a chain of command, if you will, there in the church. And notice the top three. Paul says at the top of that pecking order, as far as leadership in the church, the chain of command begins on top with the apostles. Specifically, Paul was talking about the 12 apostles that Jesus himself had chosen, most of whom were still alive when he wrote the letter to 1 Corinthians. So secondly are the prophets. And then third are the teachers. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, uh, Paul calls them pastor teachers. And so there's that pecking order, that chain of command in the church. Apostles, prophets, and then pastor teachers. So Jezebel was proclaiming herself to be in the second highest level of leadership in her church. And what does Jesus say? He says, you're no prophetess. He wasn't a fan of her doing that. Jesus teaches us to pursue humility, not arrogance. Jesus teaches us to be servant leaders, not leaders with servants. So anytime someone comes to church, uh, Impact Christian Church specifically, anytime someone comes and they immediately want to be placed in a high level of leadership, I want to be an elder, I want to be a pastor, when they want to do that immediately, for the elders and me, it's a red flag. We know, okay, something's not right here because this is not what Jesus teaches about leadership. We are blessed and given positions of leadership. We don't forcefully take them. We are given a title. We don't assume titles for ourselves. And we don't go out and take positions where others have to serve us. Jesus said, as you lead, you are to lead as a servant. Sin number two that Jezebel committed, Jesus rebukes her because her teaching was misleading Christians into sexual immorality. Now, if you go over to the Old Testament books of Jeremiah and Hosea, uh, God speaks of uh, immorality or specifically adultery in a spiritual sense. In Jeremiah and Hosea both, you'll read that God considers idol worship to be spiritual adultery. And that makes sense. If a wife cheats on her husband, that is committing adultery, correct? because she has committed herself there before God and these witnesses to be true to her husband and her husband alone. And so similarly, Israel, who had pledged themselves to God and God alone, if they were to cheat on him and follow another God, that's like spiritual adultery, isn't it? And so some Bible scholars believe that what Jesus is rebuking Jezebel here for is uh, spiritual adultery. Uh, she was leading the church into idol worship, not specifically into physical adultery. And that's a nice idea, but I don't think that interpretation is correct here. I think if you look at the context of how idol worship worked in John's day, uh, how idol worship at these temples worked, and as you look at what Jesus says here in these verses, I think it's pretty clear that Thyatira's Jezebel was doing both. 
She was misleading Christians into spiritual adultery for sure, but she was also misleading Christians into physical adultery. They were committing sexual sin. Finally, sin number three, the third thing he rebukes her for there in that verse, he rebukes her teaching that led Christians into eating food sacrificed to idols. I believe this third rebuke, coupled with what we know about the city of Thyatira, helps us piece together what Jezebel was doing that was polluting her church. I'm pretty sure Jezebel was convincing Christians to give in to the pressure from the trade guilds to conform. And so if that's the case, I believe her teaching could be boiled down to this. I think she was basically saying, Jesus taught us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. So our city leaders and our trade guild leaders are asking us to go to Apollo's temple and offer him some incense. What's the harm in that? And they expect us to eat food sacrificed to idols. Who cares? Meat is meat. Maybe we'll be able to lead someone to Christ while we're at the temple. And you and I both know that God created sex. So if there's a little sex involved in the Apollo worship, it's no big deal, especially if you're having sex with another brother or sister in Christ who you already love. This is no time to get on your moral high horse. It's not worth losing your job over. I think that's basically what this Jezebel was teaching. The bottom line was, Jezebel believed in God, but she didn't trust in God. And without trust, remember, it's impossible to please God. It says there in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, which can also be translated as trust. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without trust, it is impossible to please God. Jezebel didn't trust God to take care of her and her family if she got fired for obeying God's first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. And commandment number two of the ten, you shall not make for yourself an idol to worship. Jezebel believed that if she carried out those two commandments, she would get fired. And if she got fired, God couldn't take care of her. She didn't trust God. She didn't trust God to take care of her and her family's needs if she lived out the uh, seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. In other words, thou shalt not commit sexual sin. She didn't think if she got fired for not having sex when the trade guild said have sex, She didn't think God could take care of her family if she got fired. She didn't trust God, and she, in essence, was teaching the rest of the church, whoever would listen to her at least, not to trust God either. Now, why does God's Word say it is impossible to please Him without faith, without trust? Well, because if you don't really trust God, when the heat gets turned up in the kitchen, you're not going to obey God. And if you don't obey God... You definitely can't please God. You see that chain reaction? If you don't trust God, you won't obey God. If you don't obey God, it's impossible to please God. So therefore, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jezebel polluted sound teaching in the Thyatira church by teaching Christians that moral compromise is okay if it helps you keep your job. But in Christ's church, moral compromise is never okay no matter what it helps you keep. Therefore, it should never, ever, ever be tolerated in Christ's church. 
Bible commentator Ray Summers summarizes Jesus' rebuke really well. He writes, The complaint is that the church is harboring one guilty of heresy and spreading that heresy. The church, the true church, is not guilty of the heresy, but they condone it on the part of others. Jesus' point is loud and clear. Any church of His must never tolerate the intolerable and must never excuse what is inexcusable. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, The Ephesian church was weakening in its love, yet faithful to judge false teachers. While the people in the assembly at Thyatira were growing in their love, but too tolerant of false doctrine. Both extremes must be avoided in the church. Unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both hateful to God. I want you to focus with me and think about these final three lines. Both extremes must be avoided in the church. Unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both hateful to God. Think about that. Think about that. Unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are hateful to God. Jesus Christ has called us to speak the truth in love. And most of us have a really hard time doing both. Either we're really good at speaking the truth, but we do it with no ounce of grace or love in it. You know, we're just cold Christians. We stand on the truth and we speak the truth. We don't care who we plow over in the process in an unloving way. And then others of us, and this is much more common in the church in America today, we are hesitant to speak the truth. We are hesitant to tell people the truth because we are afraid that it will come across as unloving. God's Word tells us to do both. Many churches will say this, We just try to keep our messages positive. We just want to build people up. But here's the translation of what that really means. We just preach the parts of the Bible that we like. We refuse to preach the parts of the Bible that are offensive, judgmental, or politically incorrect. Many of you have visited churches like that. Many of you have heard sermons on the radio or on television that this describes to a T. I just preach positive messages. I don't want to talk about sin. I don't want to talk about judgment. I don't want to talk about repentance or hell. Well, pastor, if that's what you're saying, don't be surprised if you discover that your people in your pews are sinning more than they should be sinning. If you're not ever talking about hell, don't be surprised if one day many in your congregation end up going to hell. What a travesty when we don't speak the truth to people from the pulpit. Some churches say this. This is very common today. We are in an inclusive church. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? But here's what that really means. We are a church that ignores certain sins that our depraved culture tells us aren't really sins. We tolerate sin and even celebrate sin in a feeble attempt to convince the world that we are relevant and we love them. What a travesty. On the most extreme end, LGBTQ plus whatever, whatever letters they put after that churches, perform gay marriages, ordain gay clergy, encourage sexual reassignment surgery, all things that the Bible makes clear are an abomination to our holy God. Oh, but we're relevant. 
Oh, but the world thinks we love them now. And God weeps when the church of Jesus Christ sells itself to the devil to try to come across to a depraved culture as relevant and loving. God's message to the Christians in Thyatira is loud and clear. It's not okay to turn a blind eye to polluted teaching or polluted behavior in your church. You must get rid of it. Jesus' church must be a holy church. And if it's not, judgment is coming. Now look again at what Jesus says in verses 21 through 25. Jesus says, I have given her time, referring to Jezebel, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who teaches hearts, excuse me, who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus makes it clear that in mercy He has given Jezebel time to repent, but she has refused to repent. So she is about to suffer His judgment. And her spiritual children, those who follow her false teaching, it's not talking about her biological children here, but her spiritual children, in other words, her followers, those that are buying into her heresy. He says, I'm going to give them a chance to repent, and if they don't repent, judgment is coming on them as well. You see, Jesus is the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. He's got penetrating vision. He sees it all. He knows it all. And He will hold His church accountable for our sin. He judges perfectly all of those who bear His name. Now Jesus finishes this letter in verses 26-29 through by making two promises to the Christians there in the church at Thyatira. Let's look at these quickly. Promise number one. Promise number one. Christians who help other Christians overcome the pollution of bad teaching and bad behavior will rule with Christ in His earthly kingdom. Amen? Do you see that there in verses 26 and 27? It's not just a matter of me personally overcoming bad teaching and bad behavior. He lifts us up to hold others accountable as well within the church. He wants us to make sure that we're towing the line, but we help others tow the line as well. Secondly, promise number two we find in verse 28. Christians who help other Christians overcome the pollution of bad teaching and bad behavior will receive the greatest gift of all in eternity. The morning star. And who is the morning star? It's Jesus Christ Himself. Oh, it's going to be glorious on the day of judgment to receive that little white stone that we talked about last week. It'll be a wonderful thing to receive the crown of life, the crown of victory that we talked about a few weeks ago. But the most wonderful reward we will ever receive in heaven is the gift and reward of Jesus Christ Himself, our Lord and Savior. And Jesus ends His little letter by saying, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit 
says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being honest with us. Lord, you know it is hard to be a Christian in our day and age, Lord, but it's not nearly as hard as it is for many other Christians in other cities around the world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. Help us not to assume for ourselves titles and positions that you haven't gifted to us. Help us, Lord, not to compromise sexually. Help us not to compromise by putting anything or anyone in a higher position than you, Lord. Anything or anyone we put up as a higher priority in our lives than you, that's idolatry. We don't have to bow down at some shrine to be guilty of idolatry. We're guilty of it when we prioritize other things ahead of you. So, Lord, help us to steer clear of idolatry. And help us, Lord, to do that very difficult thing that you say that we should do to speak the truth in love. Lord, we want to have that balance. We want to speak the truth faithfully from your word. We want to teach your truth. We want to be honest with our neighbors and our friends and our family and our coworkers and our sinful culture, what the truth is. But Lord, we want to do that in a loving way. Help us to do that, O oh God. Help us to grow in our love while growing in our faithfulness to teaching and living out your word at the same time. And Lord, I pray that our lampstand at Impact Christian Church would continue to burn brightly for the glory of God and the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. One last thing in closing. If you have never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to encourage you to make that decision today. I want to encourage you to remember those ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and need the Savior, Jesus Christ. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and He's your only way to be forgiven and your only way to go to heaven. And C, choose to begin following Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord today. If you've made that decision, reach out to one of our prayer counselors. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to set up a time for you to get baptized if that's a need. You let us know. We'd love to meet that need to help you get connected to Jesus Christ and live forever and ever in heaven with him. God bless you as you live out his word this week without compromise. God bless you.